Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. I'm Kieran Mulvaney and I am six foot three and two hundred and fifteen pounds. And I'm Eric Raskin, and I too am six foot three and two hundred and fifteen pounds. Right, well that's that out of the way. So um, this week on the podcast. Um, We'll be welcoming a guest you probably haven't heard from in a while, as former lightweight champ Paul Spadafora joins us, as does his wife Nadine, um, to look back on his career and talk about his struggles and what he's up to now. Um, We'll cover all the latest news, featuring such names as Tim Zhu or Dennis Ugas and Jim Lampley. Um, I'll put Eric to the test in a round of the fight game, and he'll hand me my next top five assignment. But we start with a look back at a busy Saturday in the heavyweight division where punches above below, and perhaps directly on, the belt line played prominently into every outcome. The biggest of those heavyweight fights was undoubtedly the one early in the day, Saturday, from Poland, where Oleksandr Usyk, uh, who actually is like exactly six foot three, two hundred fifteen pounds, by the way, <laughs> um, but, right. uh, Usyk successfully defended three heavyweight belts against Daniel Dubois, but not without difficulty and not without controversy. The quicker, more skillful Usyk, who is now 21-0 with 14 knockouts, won most of the rounds and knocked down Dubois, who is 19-2 with 18 KOs, in the 8th for a 9 count and in the 9th for the full 10 count, more or less, earning the win at 48 seconds of the 9th. But it's the 5th round that everyone is talking about. Early in the round, Dubois landed a right hand downstairs, Usyk crashed to the canvas, and referee Luis Pabon immediately ruled it was a low blow and gave Usyk the standard five minutes to recover, and Usyk took almost that whole five minutes. On replays, you could see that the punch landed directly on the belt line with maybe a tiny bit of Dubois' glove below it. Uh, Dubois said after the fight that he'd been cheated of victory, and a lot of the internet seemed to agree, feeling it was a legal shot and Dubois deserved to win by fifth round knockout. What do you say, Kieran? Was it low? Was Dubois robbed? Can we definitively say that Usyk wouldn't have gotten up if Pabon had started counting? Um, I think one thing we can say is that not for the first time, Luis Pabon didn't make things better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) First of all, he didn't demonstrate in the ring what was a low blow and what wasn't. Um, One hopes that he did so in the dressing rooms, but who knows? Um, And and that's ultimately what matters, right? It's what the referee calls a low blow um, based on where uh, a fighter's trunks are. Um, He did move quickly to identify it as a low blow, which was good. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also one thing giving a foul fighter his full time to recover. And it's another thing entirely pushing him to take time that he isn't asking for. Um, It looked to me a little bit after the fight as if Usyk was protesting to him that he didn't need all that time. Um, You could hear Usyk saying, I am ready. And Pabon's basically like, nah, mate, put your feet up, have a cup of tea. You're good. You've got time. It's good. Relax, relax. Um, and it was that was just a bit strange. But um, the blow itself looked borderline, but Usyk's trunks weren't high. If anything, they were maybe a little low. You could see from the initial angle that they rode up with a shot. Um, Usyk went down hard. And, and he honestly, it looked more like the physical reaction of someone who'd been hit low rather than someone yes. who had collapsed from a body shot. He went down fat normally you crumple from a body shot you don't you don't react like that and go down like that um and the fact that Pabon 
did immediately indicate to Usyk that it was low and he had time means he didn't feel compelled to try and beat the count. So even if you think it was a legal blow, we don't know and we never will if he could or would have done past experience. And indeed, the evidence of this fight tells us that Usyk has remarkably quick recovery time. But, um, you know, none of the glove was above the belt line, even if some of it may or may not have been below. It would have made for a mighty controversial win indeed had Dubois scored a yes. victory that way. Um, we, Like I said, we absolutely can't say that Dubois was robbed because we don't know if Pabon had previously in, instructed them that the belt line was low. We don't know if Usyk would have beaten the count. And we don't know if Dubois would have been able to press his advantage if Usyk had beaten the count. What we do know is that Dubois had a wounded man in front of him anyway and ultimately folded like a cheap suit over the next few rounds so no you can't say he was cheated does he have reason to feel at least a little bit more aggrieved sure but we'll we'll get into this a little bit more but i'd feel a lot worse for dubois had he not subsequently been dismantled and stopped um and honestly in real time I would probably have had the same response as Pabon. Um, Usyk's trunks visibly moved. The reaction from Usyk was noticeable. It was borderline, but could easily be considered low. On balance, I probably think it is low. Dubois wasn't robbed. Uh, it's This is such a borderline case in so many ways, like literally physically borderline, and then just yeah. like everything about it. I'm kind of of two minds. For what it's worth, in real time, I thought, my instant reaction was, whoa, he dropped Usyk with a body shot. Um, it didn't look low to me as it happened, but we kind of had the wrong angle on it anyway. Yeah. Um, then immediately, based on Usyk's reaction and the ref's reaction, they both seemed certain that it was low. And then we saw the replays, and yeah, it landed mostly right on his belt line, as he said. Certainly none of the punch was above the belt. It was all, about 90% of it on the belt, and maybe 10% of the glove was the creeping below it's like if a pitch in baseball is mostly off the plate but maybe a sliver of the ball crosses the corner kind of a tough call for the ump and and so same thing here in real time i certainly can't freak out on pabon for his judgment call even if yeah i I thought enough of the punch landed in a legal zone that i would personally say it was not technically a low blow except Assuming Usyk isn't just a faker, um, it appears to have landed in a spot and at an angle that could have lifted the cup and rattled the jewels, you know? So I I think it's possible for the punch not to have been low, technically, but for the effect to have been the same as a punch to the balls. Again, uh, unless Usyk was faking, uh, the way he eventually, after a minute or two, started getting up and moving around looked like a guy recovering from a shot to the nuts. And so um, I think this is kind of a case where nobody is wrong. Like Dubois isn't wrong to feel cheated out of a victory and the ref wasn't wrong to call it a nut shot of sorts. Um, But as you said, we'll never know if Usyk could have willed himself up in immense pain had the ref started counting. Um, In the end, if you're asking me, was it a legal punch? You must make a call. I think I'm going to lean yes that it was legal and that if it had been ruled as such, it would be really unfortunate for Usyk that it impacted him like a low blow would. But 
that maybe Dubois, I kind of lean towards saying he probably should have gotten the KO, but this is one where I'd really much rather not give such a black and white answer, because the truth is, there is some gray area here, and, and someone would have the right to feel aggrieved either way. <laughs> whatever whatever they rule, the guy on the wrong side of it is not going to be happy about it. Um, all right, so, so, so give me your other thoughts on the fight. What did you think of Usyk's performance, and, and did this do anything to alter your view of his chances if he gets in the ring with Tyson Fury? The thing is, outside of that one punch, Usyk was utterly and totally dominant. I, I, he moved well, he threw good combinations, his straight left especially was on point. Um, he otherwise didn't look remotely troubled. I struggled to find a round hmm. to give um, uh, a Dubois, to be perfectly honest with you, even the round in which he kind of sort of put him down. You know, he, he took a couple of punches, but not that many, really. It, it, it didn't change my view of his chances against Fury, or for that matter, Deontay Wilder at all. I'd actually somewhat expected, and when we talked about it last week, I thought that actually Dubois might give him, you know, might fight him fairly evenly over the first part of the fight, and that didn't happen. Um, he he was slicker and faster than Dubois, as we expected. I thought he put his punches together better. He looked more like the man who wanted to win in there, honestly, from the beginning to the end. Um, I, I don't think it really changed my view of his chances against Fury or Deontay Wilder, for that matter, at all. Um, he's obviously a vastly superior boxer to Wilder. But even before the fifth-round controversy, I made a note to the effect of it's still only going to take one punch from somebody like a Deontay Wilder. Is he going to be able to take that one punch? Can right. he stop Wilder from landing that one big punch all night? Uh, he's not going to be able to stop him from landing at least one big punch all night. And what's going to happen then? And I, I, th I think we'll see. I, I think he's at a disadvantage. Despite having a massive skill advantage, he's at a disadvantage against Wilder for that very reason. And I would make him, as we've talked about before, an underdog against Tyson Fury and maybe even a fairly large one. Mm -hmm. Because if Fury isn't his skill equal, he's not far off it. And then you add to that the substantial size difference, um, the fact that Fury, quite unlike a Daniel Dubois, is going to keep coming, is going to do all kinds of things to try and win. He, we know that he can fight in many different ways. We know he's got not just that size, but that power. Um, it'll be a mighty tough ask for Usyk when and if he goes up against Fury. But we knew that anyway. And I don't, I didn't feel from watching that that I feel any less convinced about Usyk's possibilities uh, against Fury or or wilder than I was to begin with. But overall, I thought it was a fine performance from, from Usyk. Maybe even, you know, a little better than I expected. He was really, I thought, essentially dominant. Um, what about Dubois? What do you think about him coming out of this fight? Does his stock actually go up despite him losing by KO? So I, we, you and I saw the fight a little differently in that I, okay. I gave two rounds to Dubois. I gave him the fifth where, yeah, Usyk kind of worked his way back into it, and it was a little bit of a tough call, but because of the maybe that should have been a clean knockdown, mm -hmm. knockout sense to it, I, I gave Dubois the fifth, and I also gave him the fourth right before that. I thought he had a good round, mm -hmm. and I thought that the third was close. I struggled with it, but gave it to Usyk. And even the eighth, prior to the knockdown late in the round, Agreed. I was I thought Dubois was winning that round. So, um, so I had him pretty competitive in the fight, even if clearly well behind, and then and then it, the scorecards didn't matter at all. So I think his stock does go up ever so slightly. Um, 
it's still lower than where it was before the Joe Joyce fight, back when a lot of us mm-hmm. thought this was a heavyweight champion in waiting. But it goes up here, I think, because A, some will say he deserves to hold three heavyweight belts right now. Um, and B, all that aside, I felt he was very competitive with Usyk for the first, you know, seven and a half rounds or so. Um, to me, he was he was never getting totally outclassed, did lots of good work to the body himself, generally showed to me that he belonged in there. Although, to go back to what you were saying several minutes ago, he did fade and cave very quickly in rounds eight and nine. Um, But, you know, he looked a lot better than he did against Kevin Lorena, which was a fight that Mm -hmm. gave us reason to think, whoa, Daniel Dubois is just totally ruined. Um, I think we can confidently say Daniel Dubois is a top 15 heavyweight. Um, There are big questions about his durability and about whether he'll ever get over the hump and beat a fellow contender, but he can compete. The, The talent is there. I actually think a rematch with Usyk is legit, marketable, and and worthwhile based on the controversy if Usyk isn't getting fury in early 2024. And, you know, Usyk does have other mandatories to deal with. Supposedly, Philip Ergovich refuses to step aside. So I don't think it's realistic that we will see an immediate Usyk-Dubois rematch. But uh, I'm actually kind of interested to see one because of the controversy here if we aren't getting uh, Fury-Usyk. Yeah, it's interesting. I think his stock probably goes up in the UK where the he was robbed narrative took hold rapidly. Um, it's interesting. We saw a slightly different fight, like you said, because I think an objective assessment of his performance shouldn't be remotely as positive. I think top 15, what you said, is is not far off, actually. But I didn't think he was very good. I, Like I said, I, I struggled to, to give him a round. I... And it is really, really hard now to get past that one has, I don't want to say he quit, but he acquiesced. Sure. That's a good end. word for it. Yes. Um, that first knockdown looked a little weird to me. And I wondered, you know, look at a replay at first. I thought, oh, maybe he lost some purchase there because the ring was so wet. And as he slipped, it just put him in position for Usyk to hit him some more. And he went down, but... He went down awfully quietly. Maybe his knee still isn't quite mm. healed. Um, and then the second knockdown was that was clear acquiescence there. And and I don't know, was he mentally exhausted? Was he physically exhausted? Like what was that? And the we talked about this when he lost to Joyce that we thought that perhaps some of the criticism was unfair because he may well have been actually badly injured in that fight. And right. as it turned out, he was. His orbital bone was broken. But you look at that and you look at the way he showed a lot more spirit in arguing that he was robbed than he did actually in rounds eight and nine of the Mm. actual fight. I think he's got talent and he can compete with a lot of heavyweights. I don't think, look, he's much more resilient and tough a character than 99% of humanity, but he's not comparing himself or putting himself up against 99% of humanity. He's up against that strange, elite, almost superhuman type of person with the mental and physical strength of other real champions. And I think he falls short there. And it just feels as if he's always going to fall short. Um, Yeah, I don't, when we think about when we thought about him before the Joyce fight, we mm-hmm. both thought that this was a guy who was going to 
make it all the way to the top. I don't feel that way anymore. I think he can be completely competitive against a lot of heavyweights. Something's missing. Something's missing in Daniel Dubois. And notwithstanding Usyk's words of encouragement, I don't think he's going to be a world champion. Yeah. Uh, agreed on that, and uh, I'll I'll have more to say shortly on sort of the mental toughness required in, in this sport because uh, one of our other fights uh, that we'll be discussing leads into that. But uh, so so let's get on to those other fights, although not not the one that I'm referencing. Uh, in in addition to Usyk Dubois, we saw a few other heavyweight contenders in action Saturday night in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where in the main event. Jared Big Baby Anderson started a new knockout streak after going the distance with Prince Charles Martin just seven weeks ago. He used legal body shots, uh, (laughs) landing 72 of them, according to CompuBox, uh, to wear down Andre Rudenko and force a stoppage in round five, improving to 16-0 with 15 KOs. On the one hand, Rudenko was made to order for Anderson. On the other hand, no one had ever really knocked him out before. Kieran, how impressed were you with Jared Anderson in this fight? And he continues to insist he'll be retiring in about three years. So knowing he doesn't have time to waste, where would you like to see him go from here? Yeah, look, I think you hinted at it. I think it was an excellent choice of opponent for him um, after the sort of perhaps unfair level of criticism he took after that Charles Martin fight. Uh, yeah, I, I think you actually summed it up in many respects with the question. Yeah, Rudenko was tailor-made for him, but he still put him away. That's right. something that Zhang Zhilai couldn't do. Alexander Povetkin couldn't do. Um, I like the fact that he went for the body and stuck with the body, uh, but that he also changed gears as the fight went on. Like after he'd softened him up before that stoppage, he'd started to change things up a little bit. He'd started to speed up his punches. He, he, he started to throw slightly more combinations and, and it was that change that then brought about the end. And when he did have him hurt, he went for it, um, changed the pace even more, switched from body to head. I thought it was a very composed performance all around granted against somebody who didn't have much to bother him with but still that's all you can ask of the man yeah. um i do have some concerns about anderson as we've talked about and you just mentioned um his readiness to discuss retirement already yeah um the fact that he repeatedly says he's just fighting for money they aren't words you necessarily want to hear from someone at this stage of his career um but it was one of those performances that I think are good for someone of his age of experience, get some work in, get a chance to try some things out, score a good win without being in much danger. Um, we're not quite end of August. I There's still time for him to fight at least once more this year. Honestly, I wouldn't mind seeing him fight twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then next year, I wouldn't mind seeing him against the likes of, well, let's see him against the guy we're about to talk about, F.A. Ajagba, or sure. someone like Agit Kabayels, who's also beaten Rudenko. I see him stepping up to top 20 guys next year, top 10 and possibly a title shot in 2025, and then he can retire in 2026 if he wants to. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's talk also about that co-main, um, where low blows were definitely the story, as uh, Jean Kosobutsky couldn't or wouldn't stop throwing them. And after two penalties and several warnings, the Kazakh heavyweight was disqualified 33 seconds into round four, uh, handing F.A. Ajagba the win. Probably not the way Ajagba would have wanted to get his hand raised, but he does improve to 18-1, and one, while Kosobutsky suffers his first loss and is now 19-1. and one. Um, Eric, any guess what was going on in Kosobutsky's head? And should we actually be giving Ajagba credit for his meltdown? Yeah, I'll start with that second question. Absolutely. Ajagba was fighting well, using his length, using his hand speed, looking 
a little more skilled and sharp than I've seen him in the past. Um, you know, sometimes he's looked very raw here. He had a game plan. He was executing it. And the things he was doing were discouraging and frustrating Kosobutsky. Um I sold Ajagba a tiny bit short coming into this. I, I said I favored Kosobutsky, as did the odds makers. Uh, Ajagba was a small underdog. He was like plus 140 or so. But he was in charge pretty much from the outset and definitely deserves credit for leading Kosobutsky to Pola Galata of sorts. Uh, look, that's the obvious comparison. They made it on the broadcast, but it fits. Um, there's no doubt that when he fouled out in the fourth round, it was intentional. Something clicked in his mind of this is not going the way I wanted it to get me out of here. And he fouled intentionally and was on some level relieved, I think, that referee Chris Flores DQ'd him. <sighs> Boxing's a hard game. <laughs> you you yeah. know, uh, you, you have to be so mentally tough. Um, as I think I've mentioned on the podcast before many years ago, before I was completely physically washed, I was a competitive <laughs> tennis player. And there were matches where it came down to one guy really wants to bust his ass to win and the other guy is mentally or physically drained and is ready to accept the L and move on. And I was on both sides of that plenty of time. And that's tennis. You're not getting punched. Um, yeah. <laughs> it even happens in poker. Um, a, a poker pro once gave me a great quote about how at various stages of a tournament, you start to see people at the table who the pressure is getting to them and they just want to lose the last of their chips and be done with it. And that's poker. You're, you're not getting punched and you're not even being asked to like run around in the hot sun. So, you know, I actually would say it's kind of a wonder that what happened to Kostobutsky doesn't happen to more boxers. Yeah. Um, you have to be so mentally tough to succeed at a high level. And this is a fighter who hadn't been put to the test yet as a pro. And here was a test. Here was a guy giving him headaches and, Probably not because of physical punishment, but just because he wasn't mentally tough enough to accept the digging deep required. He decided he wanted out and was going to break the rules and either get away with breaking the rules or get DQ'd. Um, I'm not in Zan Kosobutsky's head. I can't say any of this with certainty, but playing amateur sports psychologist, that's what it looked like. Things weren't going his way, and he was in no mood for that kind of challenge. Mm. All right, there is very little to preview next week, and there's a lot of news to cover, but none of it quite feels main event worthy. So this week, let's combine news and previews into one segment, make the previews the main event, and then do a couple of chunks of news undercard items. Uh, so the fights to preview, really just one card of note in London on Saturday of this upcoming Labor Day weekend on ESPN+. The main event is the middleweight rematch to Liam Smith's minor upset win over Chris Eubank Jr. in January, while on the undercard, Michaela Mayer has her second fight since her close loss to Alicia Baumgartner. She takes on Silvia Bortolt of Italy in what looks on paper like a keep-busy fight. Uh, if you have anything to say about Mayer, Bortolt, Kieran, fire away, but it's the main event. I'm more curious for your take on how do you see Eubank's chances of avenging his defeat against Smith? Um... So, first of all, I think was this a, a, a yet another rematch clause? It was, wasn't it? I think that Eubank think was able right. to. And again, I just freaking hate um, rematch clauses. <laughs> uh, I really do. A KO four does not, under most circumstances, necessitate a rematch. There are exceptions, but it's not like Smith was being beaten up for three and three quarter rounds right. and then came out with the win. So, um, 
anyway, I'm sure he's fine with it. It's an opportunity to earn some money, but he deserved the opportunity to move on to something else. But anyway, look, it, all of that said, doesn't mean that Eubank can't win a rematch. Um, and we absolutely could see a different result here. I, I think Eubank needs to be able to box and move for 12 rounds, keep Smith off balance, unable to get set. He has to be unpredictable, work behind a jab, keep moving sideways, use the edges of the ring without backing up to the ropes, tie Smith up when he gets too close. But here's the thing. If you take a forensic look at Eubank's record, it's not actually that impressive. If he Mm. weren't his daddy's son, I'm not (laughs) sure that we'd be talking about him at all. I mean, yes, he's 32 and 3. And prior to Smith, his only losses were against Billy Joe Saunders and George Groves. He ushered James DeGale in retirement. A couple of decent-ish wins. But if you look outside of the gale, his best wins are, what, Avni Yildirim, Dmitry Chudinov. Hmm. Um, there's nothing that's even going to get him a ticket to the Hall of Fame. Um, and Smith, look, he's not the most skilled of boxers, but he's faced a far better quality of opponent. He's lost to Jaime Munguia. You know, he really lost to Jaime Munguia largely because he just he couldn't make a dent in the lad. Um, and, of course, there's no shame in being stopped by Saul Alvarez. Um and Smith seems to be on a strong late career run. So I don't think there's anything to suggest that Eubank's the favorite to overturn the result here, or even that he deserves the opportunity. But he might. Um, but I'll be honest, I think it's actually better if Smith wins, not just because he's a Liverpool fan, but <laughs> I think he's shown consistently that he's far more willing to make and take on the tougher challenges than Eubank has to this point in his career. And I think we're more likely to see some good fights involving the winner going forward if that winner for the second time is Liam Smith, honestly. Yeah, and full disclosure, we're recording this just a few minutes before Liverpool uh, takes <laughs> takes to the pitch. So if you hear Kieran's cadence pick up over the remainder of the show, you'll know why. Yeah, exactly. If he's suddenly trying to like race through all of this. Um, all right, let's let let's, let's play on these items in a couple of groups. Uh, we good. We good. All right. Yes. Uh, um, uh, let's actually do that. Let's go ahead and split our news items into two groups. Uh, fight announcements and the old miscellaneous. Um, four fight announcements of note. The biggest being that top 154 pounders Tim Zhu and Brian Mendoza are going to meet in Australia on October 15th. That's October 14th here in the US. With Dan Raphael of ESPN reporting that Showtime will likely televise. Talking of Showtime fights, the Canelo Charlo pay per view undercard is complete. We talked last week about Ramos Lubin and Garcia Resendez, and now we can add a welterweight fight between Ordenis Ugas and Mario Barrios to round out that card. Uh, there will be an undercard press conference this Tuesday in LA. Uh, cruiserweight champ. Jai Opataya, inactive for a little over a year since beating Maris Bredis for the title, will make his first defense on September 30th at Wembley Arena against undefeated Jordan Thompson. And also in the cruiserweight division, although we might initially have thought it would be a light heavyweight fight, the Zerdo Ramirez-Joe Smith Jr. fight we discussed last week has a weight limit of 193 pounds. Zerdo, you'll recall, had a fight with Gabe Rosado canceled because he missed weight by at least seven pounds. So as people are giving him a lot more wiggle room here, uh, Eric, thoughts on any of these? Yeah, I'll go in reverse order of how you just went. So starting with Zerto versus Smith, I did not see a weight limit that high coming. Uh, and, yeah. and it takes a little of the luster off this fight for me. It, it opens up the possibility that Zerto is significantly bigger in the ring and has an advantage that maybe swings the fight. And, you know, I'm, I'm generally reluctant to make it about size, but... 
Joe Smith is a power puncher at 175. I wonder if Zerto will just walk through mm-hmm. his best shots at a not remotely drained 193. And then longer term, you know, clearly Ramirez is done at light heavyweight. I have my doubts about how well he'll do at cruiserweight. That's a big jump to make from 175 to 200. Yeah. Uh, we don't see too many fighters make it successfully. Opataya, I was impressed by him against Bradis. He took a huge step up and won an entertaining fight with a broken jaw. And then that broken jaw took a long time to fully heal. And that's why he hasn't fought since winning the title last July. Don't know much about Thompson. He hasn't faced anyone of note and was still fighting six rounders just four fights ago. But hey, Opataya hadn't faced anyone world class before beating Bradis. So we'll see. Could turn out to be competitive. Um, That Canelo Charlo undercard. I know we're going to sound like homers here. Yeah. But, but on paper, good. it's the best pay-per-view undercard top to bottom I can remember in a long time. Ugas Barrios may be the least competitive fight on the card. Um, and, you know, when Ugas Barrios is the fight on the card that perhaps excites you the least, that's a tremendous four-fight yeah. card. Um, and Zoo Mendoza, again, being a homer if it turns out it's on Showtime, but an honest homer. That's the best fight you can make at 154 in the absence of Jermel. Um, in the TBRB rankings, Jermel is the champ. Zoo is number one contender. Mendoza is number two. And so if Jermel beats Canelo, I can't imagine he's coming back to 154. And in that case, nice. Zoo Mendoza will be to determine who's the man in the division. If he loses to Canelo and wants to fight at 54 again, the winner of Zoo Mendoza makes for a huge fight against Charlo. Uh, I love it. Good on both of these guys, but especially Tim Zhu, who is staying busy, is willing to face the most dangerous possible opposition. He really has the most exemplary attitude toward making fights of basically anyone in the game right now. Yeah, well said. Uh, Here's a roundup of the other news. Probably the biggest news to the two of us is that our friend Jim Lampley is getting back in the boxing media game. He'll be in Las Vegas for Canelo Charlo, not for Showtime, but for PPV.com, working alongside Lance Pugmire analyzing the fight card in the lead-up to the event. We have two failed drug tests to report. Robert Hellenius tested positive for an unspecified banned substance before his KO loss to Anthony Joshua. I'm not sure how useful testing before the fight is if the results don't come back until after the fight has gone ahead. Uh, and uh, Danny Rosenberger, who fought Nico Ali Walsh to a draw in May, failed his drug test. It was revealed Thursday, changing that result from a draw to a no contest. Uh, worth noting, by the way, that Ali Walsh fought again this past Saturday and lost a six-round majority decision to Sona Akale, so his perfect record is gone regardless. Savannah Marshall has signed with the Professional Fighters League and is planning to make her MMA debut soon. Eric Morales is no longer training Jaime Munguia. Instead, he has shifted into a role as advisor to the super middleweight contender. And lastly, former 122 and 126-pound title holder Kiko Martinez of Spain has announced his retirement at age 37 with a record of 44-12-2. and 31 knockouts. Uh, Kieran, the floor is yours to comment, analyze, and opinionate as you see fit. The Hellenius news is a bit baffling to me. I mean, he had literally fought one week prior (laughs) to fighting Anthony Joshua. So I have a hard time believing he was juicing specifically for the Joshua fight during fight week, because even in 2023, I have a hard time believing anybody is that stupid. And I'm not sure what the immediate benefits would be anyway, whether it would have time to have any impact, unless he was using it for recovery to help him with his quick turnaround and just thought, hoped he wouldn't be caught. So you have to assume if he was juicing, he was juicing before that for his fight beforehand. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. Um, your comments, however, about you know the usefulness or not thereof, I think are valid. <laughs> um, this is why you got knocked out. Um, <laughs> right. But but as this and Nick Wally Walsh's opponent, Elisa Baumgartner and Dillian White and God knows who else is reminding us there is a clear PED problem in boxing and it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be getting any better. But I don't know if it's growing or if the testing is getting better. Or if boxes are being stupider, um, I don't know what to make of the fact that so many involve fights in the United Kingdom and particularly on matchroom cards. Mm. Is that a coincidence? Is that a black mark against matchroom in the UK? Or does it reflect well on UK testing and, and on matchroom? I, I don't know, honestly, but it is. it does appear to be a, a considerable issue and it appears to be increasingly one. Um, Happy retirement to Kiko Martinez. For me, he's the exemplar of a boxer who squeezes every ounce of talent out of his frame. Mm. He was never the fastest or the strongest or the best. He's probably most of the time the fittest. I mean, even at 37, he always showed up in phenomenal shape and he could be a tough out for the best of them. Like he fell short against Carl Frampton and Rendell Monroe and Josh Warrington chopped twice each and against Gary Russell Jr. and Leo Santa Cruz. He had some very good wins. Uh, Kid Galahad, Bernard Dunn, Jonathan Romero. Honestly, he was just a credit to the sport, Kiko Martinez. I think this everything about what you should be as a boxer. Um, and uh, so happy retirement to him after a quite long career. Mm-hmm. It feels like we're going to get a, an MMA rematch between Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall, Possible, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, P- PFL is where Shields is also signed. I think she was even there for the opening announcement. And Mark Taffet, our friend and former colleague and Clarissa's advisor, is already talking it up as a rematch. I'm not very interested in Shields Marshall in a boxing rematch because I thought Clarissa handled it quite well. I'm not super interested in it as, a, as an MMA fight either, but it has a little bit more intrigue there, I think. Um, and as for Lamps, what can you say? Fantastic. Um, as you and I have expressed each other privately, Here's hoping we go to Canelo Charlo, if only for the opportunity to sit down and talk with Jim again. Um, boxing is so much the poorer for not having Jim in it. And while he won't be calling the fight, I think just having him around, having him involved, being part of the promotional effort is only going to help. There's a mm-hmm. huge reservoir of love and respect for Jim that's only grown in his absence. Um, and I think his enthusiasm for the sport and for the fighters will come shining through. I think whoever came up with this idea i think it's an incredibly astute move um for selling this fight and it's a welcome one for all of us who've missed working with him as well <laughs> well said and i kind of hope jim isn't listening right now because he's probably getting a little choked up hearing you say exactly. those words about him <laughs> exactly all right it is time now for this week's edition of the fight game and eric we're going to do something a little different this time hmm. um a listener called sam rose wrote to me to say that he's a big fan of the podcast and he wanted to try his hand at coming up with his own top five clues. And he said, you can use this anytime I'm in a rut. I'm always in a rut, as you know, Eric. <laughs> so I'm happy to use it now. Cool. And actually, I also think it's a really good idea. I actually, if this works, I think it's wonderful to have listeners contribute their own efforts if sure. they want to and, and, and test us. Because uh, eventually you and I are going to run out of ideas. Uh, and personally, I also thought Sam's clues were pretty good. Okay. Uh, anyway, are you ready, sir? I am, and I'll just say that I've I've had some contact with Sam Rose in the past. Nice guy. So uh, okay, all right. Let's see what he's got. All right. See if he still feels the same way in five clues or less. All right. Number one: this clash of unbeaten fighters saw a future Hall of Famer claim his first title by eleventh round stoppage. 
Okay. Future Hall of Famer KO11 to claim his first title. All right. So the first KO11 I think of involves in by a future Hall of Famer claiming his first title does not qualify because his opponent was not unbeaten. And my mind went immediately to Eric Morales winning his first title against Daniel Zaragoza. But clearly that is not it. Um, I'm pretty sure that was a KO 11. Um, Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So let's give it a moment here and see if I think of another KO 11 to claim a first title for a future Hall of Famer. There is not anything else coming immediately to mind, so I think I will not make an official guess and uh, move along to clue two. All right. Despite Bob Arum once describing the loser of the fight as, quote, more of a dancer than a fighter, that didn't stop him from taking a lead early on in the fight over the challenger. Hmm. So the loser, described by Arum as a dancer took a lead, but then got knocked out. So I'm trying to think of who Aram would have said that about. Uh, I'm trying to like think of some fighters who kind of were mover, dancer types. Uh, so obviously more more boxer than slugger. I'm thinking of guys like Derek Gaynor, but I don't recall him losing to some future Hall of Famer in their first title win. Um, uh, so far, Sam Rose, you've got me stumped. Nothing is, is jumping <laughs> right to mind. I, I'll, I'll ask a sub-question that you may choose to answer or may choose mm-hmm. not to, but because Bob Aram is commenting, should I be presuming that the, this is a, a top-ranked fight or fighter? Or do you not want to say time. I'm actually having to work with my memory banks here. At the time, I believe it was, yes. All right, I'm still, I still don't have a guess, so let's go on to clue three. All right, this could help a lot. Okay. The winner of the bout would go on to fight for another 26 years, claiming titles in three divisions as he moved up in weight. Wow. Uh, <laughs> fought another 26 years. Titles in three divisions. So I, I immediately think of Roberto Duran. Uh, so if he won his first title again, but he won his first title against. Was that a KO 11? Him against Ken Buchanan? No, it's 14, wasn't it? Or... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, I, I wasn't thinking that sounded right. Um so, so who else won their first title by KO11 against a fellow unbeaten, perhaps coming from behind to do so, and fought another 26 years? Is it? Are people? Uh, are are the are the listeners yelling at me right now, Kieran? Should it be kind you're, of obvious? I, I will say this: you're gonna you're gonna be pretty annoyed with yourself because Soon. I was close, or because I'm like way off base. Yeah, because you haven't gotten close yet. I'll tell oh, you that okay. Much. All right. All right. Let me think. I'm just trying to. And like... you're going to be like, you're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Now, to be fair, I didn't get it till clue four. But um, <laughs> but afterwards, I was annoyed with myself. Okay. Um, fought another 26 years and won titles in three additional divisions? Was Or was three counting this one? Uh, uh, actually, uh, it was, 
I'm trying to. Th- I don't. I don't know that that think, makes a I difference for, for me three, anyway. <laughs> I think it's three additional, actually, as I think about it. But yeah, mm. yeah. Like I'm. Pick, I'm thinking of some of those guys who went like deep into their 40s, like Camacho. But I, I don't. Uh, yeah, I must be blanking on someone kind of obvious who would have had like a 30-year-long mm. career. But let's go to clue four. I got nothing right now. You will get it with this. Um, okay. <laughs> the defending champion, now you will, was making okay. his sixth title defense in one of the biggest fights to ever take place in his hometown of Davenport, Iowa. Mm. Oh. Oh, I thought you'd get this. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's not so obvious. But Okay, so wait. Okay, now I think I know. Because my initially I went to like Antoine Eccles was from Iowa, but now I think I'm remembering was Michael Nunn from Iowa, and this this would be he James was. Tony knocking out Michael Nunn. Yes, okay. sir. All right. Wow, he fought another twenty. I guess he did. Yeah, he kind of yeah, hung around a while. Yeah, to think of, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he did. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one from uh, from Sam. There, it's in that sort of that little sort of era of history, a little before I started covering boxing that mm-hmm. i know but it wasn't like such a classic fight that i like went back and watched i may not have seen that that whole fight ever i've seen the knockout obviously but it's in that little sort of spot like you go from 1997 to present and i'm a little more locked in you go to like yep. the 70s and 80s and i've talked about it a million times it's some of that early 90s stuff is uh, uh gonna spring to mind a little more slowly for me but uh that's a good one, and now that I'm looking back at all the clues, uh, it all does uh, add up pretty nicely, and maybe James Tony should have crossed my mind a little earlier than he yeah. did. Yeah, I'll say this was one of those fights. I was living in Amsterdam at the time, because this was May 10th, 1991, and I, it was one of those fights that a lot of us did at the time. I found out about it six months later reading the Ring magazine, <laughs> right? Um, and being at the time kind of surprised, like, oh, I thought Michael Nunn was really good. Who's this James Stoney guy? Right. Uh, and I actually kind of remember, and of course I didn't buy the Ring magazine. I was standing in the bookstore reading it. But um, yeah, so that's it was one of those fights. The number five clue yes. I want to, Sam nailed the art of the clue five here. <laughs> it really is an the, art. It really is. Uh, the loser learned he was second to one when a vicious left hook <laughs> dropped him in the 11th round. Although he beat the count, he was quickly dropped again and it was lights out, crowning a new middleweight champion. Sam Rose, that is an excellent fifth clue. Yes, well done. Uh, and yeah, just to double back to what you said at the top, listeners, Sam or anyone else, uh, continue to reach out to either me or Kieran, but not both of us, because then we'll both see it and it won't work. Pick one of us, <laughs> reach out, and uh, go ahead and send uh, a full set of five clues to save us some work, because uh, if they're all as good as this, uh, uh, we'll, we'll keep using them. All right. All right. Our guest this week won the IBF lightweight title against Israel Cardona in August 1999, defended it multiple times over the following years against the likes of Victoriano Sosa, Billy Irwin, and Angel Manfredi, among many others, and he ultimately retired in 2014 with a record of 49-1-1. And, and that one defeat didn't come until his penultimate fight at the age of 38. He is, of course, the Pittsburgh kid, Paul Spadafora. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure thanks. to welcome you and your wife, Nadine, to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Um, so, so let's just start with an update on your life these days, Paul. Uh, I believe you're training fighters, including your son. Uh, g- give us a snapshot of what you're up to and, and how big a part of your life boxing is. I mean, this is this is like the it's like I'm I'm everything that I'm building is for boxing. You know what I mean? And, it's, and, and I got my nephews coming. 
my my uh, son, you know. So it's just like, as soon as I wake up, it's boxing. How old is your son? Eighteen. So, and does he have designs on going pro, or what's where does where yeah, does he yeah. stand and all that? Yeah, he. I mean, he's 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 relaxed. He's good. I mean, he's good. He can turn pro right now. Okay, but for now, he's an amateur, and yeah. uh, so how how far off ideally? Uh, is he from turning pro if 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 it's up to you? Like, if it was up to me, I'd get about two or three uh, national tournaments and then turn pro. Okay. You, know? you gotta make like it's like you gotta get a good promoter and all the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. So, but what what uh what weight class is he? Tell us a little about him in terms of his style of fighting. Does he fight like in your in your style, or does he have his own style? Uh, he has his own style. He's right-handed. He's a, he's a he's he's his his boxing game is unbelievable. His IQ's up there. You know what I mean? Hmm. I mean, it's just like he's so relaxed. It's like stuff that you that people with years and years of tons and tons of fight get. You know what I'm saying? He got a lot of he got a lot of good things going on with his boxing. What weight is he? One fifteen. I would say I would say Gino turned pro with like one nineteen. All right, so bantamweight area for now. Yeah. Okay. My nephew's coming too. My nephew, I got a nephew too. He's coming. <laughs> one twenty. One twenty. And how old is he? 17. Okay. So they're both around the same, uh, same age, uh, roughly same weight range, roughly. And, uh, both both training under you. Listen, since they came out of the, uh, their mothers, as soon as they came out, they stayed with boxing. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. Look what I got on. Look what I got on. Look at my boots. I'm I'm ready for Tony when he gets oh, here. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> there you go. For I'm, the people I'm ready, I'm ready for Tony when he gets here. <laughs> okay. So for, for the people uh listening but not but not able to see, uh Paul has his full full uh boxing boots on ready to go. Nice. <laughs> hey, um let's look back on some of the highlights of your boxing career. I, I would say most people would argue probably the most exciting fight you were in was your two thousand three draw with, with Leonard Dorin, which was like really bloody fight of the year contender think, uh, what memories stand out to you from that fight i thought he was gonna get i thought i was gonna stop him i swear to god in my life i thought i was gonna stop him i was hitting the body i thought i was gonna stop him i swear to god on my life and i just got tied up in that that moment you know what i'm saying mm. but it's all it, it everything happens for reasons you know mm. Was it, would you agree that was one of the better fights you were in, or do you have other I personal think, highlights i mean my favorite fight is when i fought victoria and sosa mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Show character yeah. there. You know what I mean? You can't lie about stuff like that. Yeah. That, that's he was a he was lie. a tough he was a rough tough dude, wasn't he, Sosa? I mean, he 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 was tough enough to have me knocked out. Mm. I was knocked out. He had me mm. out, out. You know what I mean? Early too, in like the third round. How long yeah, did that, that kind of take to snap back together after that? Like two rounds. Oh yeah. Two rounds of all. My memory of of that fight is sort of it reminds me a little bit of of Juan Manuel Marquez's fight against Pacquiao in that it's not just that you survived, but that then you eventually took back over and were in control of the fight and then won enough rounds to win the fight. Yeah, yeah. I was out. I was done. It used to be on like uh like deck like comeback of like the decade mm-hmm. or something on ESPN. On ESPN. I used yeah. to see it play, but we can't find it now because it's yeah. been so long. Well, another fight of yours, uh, Paul, just about the, the smartest that I've ever been made to look by a boxing match was the night that you box circles around Pito Cardona to win your first title because Cardona was favored, 
but I, I was picking you. I was confident that your skills would be too much for him. Uh, is that your best boxing performance, would you say? I think I would say <clears throat> I fought this guy named um, Ivan, Ivan Victorelli from, from Italy. He mm-hmm. was a, some guy from Italy. I think that was one of my best ones <clears throat> that I that I fought. That Sosa, um, Chucky e. T, right? You know what I mean? I think that the, no, when I say that, I'm talking about the uh, if you was looking at my game. You know what I'm saying? Not mm-hmm. the, right. Mm-hmm. Just to, in terms of you being able to to show your skills. Yeah, in, on, in, in all walks of the game. You know what I mean? Different mm-hmm. different angles of the. You know what I'm saying? remembering back to going into the Cardona fight, were you as confident in yourself that you were going to win that fight uh, comfortably? Uh, or did you even surprise yourself a little bit with that one? I, I knew I was going to win. I knew I was, I, PK told me back in like, uh, it was like a, two years before I fought Card- Cardona. I was over at my grandma's house and he called me up. He's like, hey, Paul, put uh, USA Tuesday Night Fights on. Israel Cardona was fighting David Sample. You remember that? Yeah, they kept turning the lights on, the lights off in the arena. Oh, right. Now I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and PK was like, "You'll beat these motherfuckers right now." Like, <laughs> I knew, I knew, I knew I was going to be okay. Okay. So one other thing that people know you for still and talk about a lot is not a fight per se, but it's that famous sparring session that you had with with Floyd Mayweather. Um. Can you tell us a little bit about the context of that um, from your perspective? You know, what were the circumstances? Um, and do you think if you'd ever had the chance to do it professionally, you know, in a price fight, you'd have been able to replicate that performance? I don't know. Like, I don't know. I just don't see how it would change. You know what I mean? Maybe it would. I don't know. I just don't see how, how whenever you, whenever that's who you are, that's who you are. You know, mm. if you're gonna fight me, we're gonna be in, we're gonna be doing that. So, mm. I don't think I don't think it would have been able to change. So, what well, for people who don't know, what were the circumstances? You just won the title, right? And he was a youngish kid coming up, and at some point he wanted out of the sparring session, right? No, I don't remember that. All I know is Jesse says Jesse said he wanted to be done, and he said, "No, you're gonna do this many rounds or something." I know this. He was he. I was getting ready to fight. He wasn't, he wasn't getting ready to fight. I was like 10 days away from a fight. I'm sure you ain't going to come in the gym and disrespect me. I don't give a fuck who you are. You know what I'm saying? That's not going to happen. Like, you know what I'm saying? And, and that's just all it was. So you felt there was like, he, he came he, in there, there was some disrespect he, he, there and he needed to show yeah, him his like, boss. I was, I was doing well against everybody in Vegas. I was doing well against them. So he, so, um, Mr. Uh, Mayweather went, when um, yeah. his dad. Got got the spar for uh, Floyd. Floyd wanted to spar me, I guess, because he was mad because I was doing, I was, I was getting out on people. You know what I mean? I'm talking about giving him pretty good big sparring parts, you know? Right. Do you think that counted against you in terms of ever getting a shot at Floyd? Yeah, I, I just think that he wouldn't. Not that it. Not that. Um, I don't think that. I don't think that that that, that video can't that videotape helped me mm. at. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that helped me at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so so overall, uh your your record is a great one. 49, 1 and 1, like Kieran said when he introduced you. Are you satisfied with what you did in your boxing career or do the the could have been's gnaw at you? I definitely I, I definitely ain't satisfied. Okay. You know what I mean? 
Like that's that's the basically that's the that's the only story that I could tell. You know, it's a true story. Like, if I would have never put that shit in my body, I would have never been in a situation like this. You know what I'm saying? Right. I got yeah. I got I got um mental health. I I battled with alcohol and drugs. I, I battled with them my whole life. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, and that's that that's really what held you back from fulfilling your full boxing potential was your your outside the ring distractions, not anything yeah, that's, in that's, the that's ring. The only thing. That's the only thing. You've been very open about, and you, you just mentioned it, you've been very open with some of those struggles that you had, and, and including after your career. So I guess the simple question is, how are you doing now, man? Are you are you happy? Are you healthy? Are you on track? Is everything going good? I haven't, I haven't drank since May 30th. That's the longest. I haven't put none in my body since May 30th. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to I'm not gonna lie. I smoke weed. I smoke, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. smoking weed today. I smoked weed just a little bit ago. You know what I mean? But yeah, that's it. And I feel I feel, I feel that like whenever sometimes when I smoke weed, I I feel like uh, I'm getting smarter, hmm. and sometimes I get the I get the weed I get energy on. I I quit alcohol for weed myself, so I actually hear what you're saying. <laughs> you don't turn into the Incredible Hulk smoking a joint. You just sit there and dingy, you know. When he drinks, it's like ah, mm. the person. So I much rather have be. Hey, let's check this out. I'm gonna take you up. So this okay. is what I did right here. This little, the little like, you know, say you had a boxer that's fighting for a big fight, mm-hmm. right? You want to have a little camp, just a little, you know, four week camp. Boom, he got his room right here. Look, his room, his own bathroom. And let, look, check this out. You can see this. And now we got the jungle where it really happens. Oh, this is all. This is all in in your house. Uh, you're showing us you have a a, a ring yeah. set up for yeah. for training guys. I didn't realize that. It's getting because built that's right the now. only thing I should be talking about right now. Look this right here. Look at that. That's it. Some people <laughs> right. need help. I'm talking about with their boxing games, and they don't even know it. Do you do you feel like you're actually more your calling is more as a trainer than than it was as a fighter that you're really meant it's to be a trainer. Like, it's not even like uh, training, being a trainer, not not that, not that, but just being a part of boxing, like in helping boxing. I want mm-hmm. that to be definitely my calling. Like, that's all it has to be. Mm. Not be a trainer, like I, like I was telling Nadine, like I I have fighters in Pittsburgh I worked with my whole life, like for like ten years now. They're turning pro. They come out here, they can chill with me. They can stay right here. Their trainer can come, the sparring partner can come, and they can and they can fight right there. Hmm. And and then I can and, and I can I can oversee it. I can look and I can see what's going on. You know what I mean? Right. Because hmm. when you got eyes of boxing like that, then you you need to watch that shit. You know what I'm saying? Right. And that's the only reason why I need to be there. Hmm. Right. You know, you were Kieran was just asking you about um you know the 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 things you've been through with the drugs and the alcohol and and all that and the lessons that you've learned. Do you feel like that helps guide you in terms of being able to take these younger men? And put them on the right path with boxing. That what your experiences help you in that regard. I think I think most definitely, but it's not even that though. It's not even that. I just got something. I I can get across to, I can get across to people mm. that are like have them type of issues. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Right. Mm-hmm. Do you do any of that kind of work like outside of boxing? You know, like reaching out and trying to help you know folks who who sort of need some kind of grounding in life. 
Well, he wants to wait till he's clean for a year, and then he wants to go and do like schools and like go to like different high schools and middle schools and talk to kids. Like that's like one of his goals. He wants to be like more like a like a life coach, mentor type person. We're gonna start showing him on YouTube, like doing box and stuff. You know, because like for Paul to be a trainer, he does want to be a trainer, but he also wants to work on his mental health too. And sometimes like Paul's more invested than the fighter. And then he'll take it out on himself, you know, like Paul, you know what I mean? So it's like, he's trying to figure out his place in it, but he definitely wants a place it's, in it's it. in boxing. Yeah. He definitely wants yeah. a place in boxing. He's just trying to find his place, like how he can contribute and stuff. Cause he loves it. Like he literally falls asleep to it, wakes up to it. Like, yeah. Right. Well, uh, we, we understand, Paul, that there is a biography uh, on you coming out soon and also that you're exploring doing an autobiography. Certainly, your story is, is well worthy of, of a book or two. What, what can you tell us about those projects? If you like me, if you like, if you fuck with me, then grab the book. If you like <laughs> it, if you like me, grab the book. That's why, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's shy and super humble, so he'll like... Well, that's that's what you're for, Nadine, to pump him up a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, that makes it a lot easier to be or makes you better at being somebody who can help others that way. Right. Because it's not all about yourself. You're able to make I mean, that's it. About a, no, that. you have to think of it. Like, I look at it like this. I was the most selfish person mm. alive. You know what I'm saying? So mm. I so it's like it's like try not to be selfish. Try not to be. One other thing related to your life story, the movie Southpaw, the, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. Tell us about that. Your contention is that it's basically your story and they lifted it. I know. Yeah, I know. I know that. Mine, I know that for sure. Well, he was in a rehab in Miami yeah. and he was like in a really bad place. I know like, for sure. And so when he was down there, he was like telling his story in a circle, you know, and the housewives or the uh, mob wives were there. And they had connections to Harvey Weinstein. So they took him to the Poconos to meet with these producer people. And he told his story with another one of his friends, Mike Mons, and then another guy named Mike Gartier. And then they met with him again. He told his story again. But this time, Mike Mons wasn't there, but was Mike Gartier. Oh, but the other guy was there. <clears throat> he lived in Miami for like a year. They... They so they and he was like hanging out with some of the actors in the movie too. And then also it's just even like they made Paul an inspirational video at that time because he was having his comeback. And like in the inspirational video that they made for Paul was the same gym in the movie and the same steps that Jake Gyllenhaal ran up, the same gym. Like the only thing they just switched things around, like they made the girl die, which I didn't die. I grew up in group homes. The girl in the movie grew up in group homes. They made it a point to say it in the beginning of the movie, like, oh, Maureen grew up in group homes because a nonprofit or whatever they were talking about in the beginning of the movie. Then, the, and like, nobody ever knew my side of the story. So like, and I wasn't downer. So it's just like, it's just messed up because I had just moved to Vegas. I didn't even realize that they did that, you know? And, and like, we lost our kid to children use the services. We had to do supervised visits to get it back. Like, so many things in the movie was what we went through. So it really like sucks when you like watch it and you're like, wow, that really happened to me. And it's really on a movie. And it re they really got this from him because they took advantage of him that he was in a rehab and has a brain injury too. Cause let's not forget. He also has a, a hole in his head. He's in the Cleveland clinic. So it's like, you're literally taking somebody in, I do got a hole in, my head. in Paul's book. You'll see 
You know, he never had safety and security. He always had people taking of Everybody else made money off Paul, but Paul, you know what I mean? So it's like for somebody to like do that to him and like really not even like to make sure he's like set up or taken care of it. Like, like it really breaks my heart for him because it's like his life is so sad, but at the same time, it's going to be a happy ending. Like you just grew up so sad, like, like you know, my life so sad. Like you, like the way you grew up was so sad. And then Paul made it, Jake Gyllenhaal and Jake told him, like, I know you better than you know yourself. So, 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 just to to wrap up on on that topic, uh, Nadine, is there, are you? Are you or have you pursued legal action or where does Everybody that all tells stand? Us that we don't have a case because there's so many different things too. Like we, everybody I try to do anything with it, they act like we can't do anything. And I don't understand how we can't. Hmm. I don't understand how you can't. I mean, at the end of the day, he has his book coming out and I would like to sell that into a movie. Mm -hmm. you know, and then I'd like to have somebody do, help him do an autobiography and stuff. So he has things to look forward to in the future. It just mm -hmm. sucks. Like if they could give us like, at least like, say, yeah, we stole this from you would be like a, a nice thing to happen or something. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. right. So it's as much as anything legal, it's just trying to get the acknowledgement and the word out that, that, that this was inspired by Paul's story. Yeah. Cause I yeah. mean, it was made, look at the movie. It's black and yellow, South Paul, freaking right. his baby's mom's uh baby's another baby she has dad is, is the trainer to billy hope in the movie you mm. know what i mean like it, it was about redemption paul's whole life's about redemption you know what i mean it's just crazy hey well look nadine thank you very much for sharing your story and paul thanks very much to everyone for for joining us and i'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy oh. hearing about you guys and uh best of luck with everything with all your projects thank you thank you thank you our thanks again to Paul and Nadine. Um, I met Paul way back in 1999. He, he came to the ring office for a photo shoot with his belt right after beating Cardona. He was a very shy, quiet person then, mm. and, and and clearly he still is. Um, but at the same time, he's an open book. Um, I, I appreciate his honesty uh, about his yes. struggles. Um, and of course, listeners couldn't see it, but over Zoom, he took us on a little tour that included a boxing ring in his garage uh, with basically a, a one-bedroom apartment next to it for fighters who want to stay and train there. Um, last thing I want to comment on from that interview, I have to admit, I've never actually seen the movie Southpaw, so I just kind of right. nodded along, but but didn't know the various details Nadine was talking about there. Um, I assume, Kieran, since you're about eight Rocky Creed movies behind, that you, <laughs> that you never saw Southpaw either? The only thing I remember about Southpaw is that the movie poster had Jake Gyllenhaal standing in an orthodox stance, and I was like, not watching that movie. <laughs> oh, I didn't even remember that detail. That's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, it was good talking to Paul and Nadine. Thanks again to them. Uh, are you ready, Kieran, for your next top five assignment? Yeah. So you're doing it yourself or should we just randomly <laughs> ask uh, listeners? to send? Nobody them? sent me anything. So I had to come okay. up with this one on my own. Um, and right. um, I'm spinning off of the guy we opened the show talking about, Oleksandr Usyk. Uh, Usyk, as I'm sure you know, was an Olympic gold medalist. I had forgotten until doing a little bit of research to make sure my top five assignment was going to work that he won a gold medal at the same Olympics where his two-time opponent, Anthony Joshua, won a gold medal. Um, anyway, I got to thinking about the greatest Olympic gold medalists as pros, but I needed a time cutoff. I, I wasn't going to do all time because then obviously Muhammad Ali is number one. Uh, I wanted a time cutoff where it was possible 
for Usyk to make the top five. And I decided that cutoff is after 1984, the last truly dominant U.S. Olympic team. Okay. Like, if we included 84, Pernell Whitaker is almost certainly a slam dunk number one. And and if we go back to 76, Ray Leonard's the easy number one, and he right. and Michael Spinks and Whitaker are all on the list, and Usyk has no chance of making it. So what I want you to rank is the top five Olympic gold medalists as pros, 1988 to present. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, you don't even need to bother looking up the 2016 and 2020 gold medalists. They haven't done enough yet to get consideration. Right. You know, you could look them up if you want, but trust me, it's a waste of time for, for the purposes of this top five list. So you just need to look up all the gold medalists from 88 to 2012, seven Olympiads, and rank the top five pros who won gold from 88 to present. And it's good because because they got ripped off. Um, Floyd and Roy aren't uh, yes. able able to sort of you know skew this in any one direction. So that is good. Actually. Indeed, like some that. of some of the very best Olympic fighters from these many years did not win golds. So uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's just zeroing in on the ones who actually got the gold and then what they did as a pro and. Um, it's uh, I, I sort of sketched out my names already, and I, yeah, it's it, it's an interesting grouping where it'll be a little tricky to figure out a does Usyk make the cut, and b right who who's who's at the very top. It's not like a clear right. cut number one as it would have been, like I said, if we included eighty four, seventy six, etc. Right. Without without thinking about it, I think of two immediately who perhaps separate themselves, but there might be others that I'm just not thinking about at the moment. Yeah. So um, uh, excellent, excellent. All right, I I like that. I like okay. that a lot. Good. Um, that'll that'll be fun. All right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. It continues to be a relatively quiet period in what has been an absolutely jam-packed 2023. I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. It gives us all a chance to catch our breath mm -hmm. before we uh, end up strong, I think, uh, for the rest of the year. But we will be back next week anyway. And uh, we'll have news and views and previews and reviews and interviews and other things ending in views. <laughs> Until then, thanks as always for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.